But God, as we uh, get ready to jump into a book where there's a lot of questions, some frustrations, some difficulties, God, I pray that our overwhelming reminder would be simply that, that Jesus is enough. Father, I thank you that you've loved us enough to provide the answer that we need to the biggest question of our life. Now, God, you haven't given us all the answers, and we're thankful for that, too. So, God, I pray that as we begin our time together in this book, that, again, the most overwhelming reminder to us would be this. That while we were separated because of our sin, you loved us. And you gave us your son, Jesus Christ, who willingly took our place and bore what we deserved on the cross. That he was buried. That three days later, rose again. Now we can live in victory over the sin that continues to try to drag us down. Father, remind us of that often. For it's in your good, precious, wonderful name I pray. Amen. Amen. You can have a seat. Take your Bibles if you have them, and if you don't, we have Bibles available in the back. We have some children's Bibles available now in the back of the room as well, so they can Uh, grab one of those. We are going to be in the book of Ecclesiastes, so I will encourage you to turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Ecclesiastes, it is definitely the favorite book of the Bible for almost nobody. Um, (laughs) My my goal is to soften that a little bit. Um, I've come to love Ecclesiastes um, quite a bit not just recently, but um, over the past few years as I've read it and studied it, because what you find in the book of Ecclesiastes is you find the author of Ecclesiastes tearing down uh, some of the, the pithy Christianity of easy answers. I mean, it, it goes hard at all of those overly simplistic things that as believers we often say when we don't have other answers, like... God works together all things for good. Really? Does he? Well, absolutely he does. But is that the right application of that verse in this moment? Are you saying that this unspeakable horror and tragedy that I'm walking through right now is good? No. And that's what the book of Ecclesiastes does. It dismantles those things. So for some of you, this study is going to rattle you. Because it's going to shatter your neat and tidy view of who God is. And for the rest of you, you're going to read Ecclesiastes this time and be like, Oh, I'm not crazy. You might be. But hopefully this encourages you a little bit. So the book of Ecclesiastes begins like this. I'm just going to read the first verse and talk about that just for a moment. It says, The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. So right out of the gate, what we get to do is talk about who wrote the book of Ecclesiastes. And so the obvious answer is Solomon. Solomon was king over Israel. He was the son of David. He, he is the teacher who's mentioned throughout here. And the teacher will talk about how he got everything he wanted in life. He got wisdom. He had women. He had riches. He had power. But apart from God, those things still left him empty. And that's definitely Solomon's life in a nutshell. So obviously, Solomon is writing the book of Ecclesiastes. However, as you read and study Ecclesiastes, what you find, and there's actually two voices, there's two speakers, there's two potential authors 
in this book. One is the voice of Solomon, the, the teacher, who talks about the sense of futility that he had with his accomplishments, and the, the other is the voice of an editor who makes comments on what the teacher says in the book. He, he, something, sometimes he affirms what the teacher says, sometimes he corrects what the teacher says. Um, it's possible that both voices are actually the voice of Solomon, that uh, he, he, it's, it's kind of like he gets to the end of his life, it's almost like a, um, a, a deathbed confession of, of Solomon himself as he talks about, this is what I pursued, but this is what I found to be true, and he's kind of reflecting uh, on his life. But, and, and I think that's probably the most natural reading of the book of Ecclesiastes. However, when you read through the story of who Solomon is and the history of his life in the book of First Kings, you don't find any place where he comes to that place of repentance. And I think that the author of First Kings probably would have mentioned that had it happened. So the other possibility is that this editor is somebody who came along later, took some of Solomon's writings, put them in a book, and offered his divinely inspired interpretation of the sayings of Solomon. And that's, that's possible. So, so in that scenario, you've got two different people writing this book. In the original one, you have Solomon writing this book. So, so which one is it? You ready? I haven't the foggiest idea. <laughs> and that's okay. Because regardless of who it is, or how it works... When you interpret Ecclesiastes, you still come to the same conclusion. So, so we know Solomon's involved, and so I will tell you this right out of the gate. As I preach through the book of Ecclesiastes, I will almost every time I talk about the person writing, I will talk about Solomon, um, because he is the prevalent voice in here. So, here we go. Man, this thing starts off really encouraging. You ready? Verse 2. Futility! Absolute Futility, says the teacher. Everything is futile. Ever had a day like that? Sounds like my man Solomon needs a big hug right now, right? He's having a bad day. So, so, so that is actually kind of the theme of the rest of the book. What, what Solomon does, he says, meaningless, empty. That word futility is hevel. Hevel is the Hebrew word. And, and he doesn't pull any punches. So, so what's futile? What's meaningless? What's hevel? And, and, and Solomon says, everything. Everything. The word hevel in the Hebrew literally means a vapor, a smoke. He, makes, he uses that word 38 times in the book of Ecclesiastes. When you understand there's only 12 chapters in the book of Ecclesiastes, do the math, he uses that word an awful lot. Literally, that, that word vapor or smoke would lead us to believe that, that the meaning of that word in the context is, like smoke, like vapor, life is <coughs> excuse me, fleeting. Life is temporary. That's one of the two meanings. The other meaning, when you think about smoke, is life is an enigma. It seems like one thing might be true. But in fact, the exact opposite is. How many of you were infatuated with clouds when you were a kid? How many of you are still infatuated with clouds? All right, good. That makes me feel better. There are moments when you can look up in the sky and be like, that is so puffy. It's like cotton candy. And it does. And it's hard to believe when you look at the clouds that, that you can't reach up and just grab them, Right? And as a kid, I remember thinking, man, I would love to be able to just sit on a cloud. I'd just be like, 
That'd be awesome, right? Small problem. You're counting on the cloud to hold your weight. Well, you're in trouble for a couple of reasons, because that means you fell out of an airplane. And secondly, there's no way that thing's going to hold you. That's the enigma. As you look at it, it seems like it's a, a solid, but in fact, it's a vapor. So it seems like you can touch it. It seems like you can reach for it, but when you reach for it and you grab it, you've got nothing in your hands. Hevel. Seems like you understand what should make sense. It seems like you understand how this should go, and yet it ends up differently. Hevel. The, the, the phrase that he uses a number of times throughout the book when he's considering Hevel is it's like, it's like in life we're chasing the wind. Chasing the wind. That's Hevel. It's fleeting, it's futile, you're never going to catch it, and it's an enigma. Even if you did catch it, what would you have? Nothing. He says, this is the problem, the problem of life. So let's talk about the hevel of life. I'm going to start reading in verse 3, and I'm just going to walk through these next uh, eight or nine verses. <clears throat> Please excuse me, I am still getting over this crazy cough, so I'm trying not to cough really loud in the microphone and gross you all out. You're welcome. All right, verse 3. <laughs> what does a person gain for all of his efforts that he labors at under the sun? Generation goes, generation comes, the earth remains forever. Let me stop here for a second. Under the sun is another key phrase. Because what you're going to find is that he walks through Ecclesiastes as he describes the hevel of life, the meaninglessness of life, the lack of purpose and all of these things that he pursues, the enigmas of life. He is admitting outright that his understanding is his understanding of viewing all of these things as under the sun. He's talking about the futility and the toil that comes into life under the sun. What exists above the sun? God. But here in, in this world, what we are doing, and scholars point to this many times, it points back to Genesis chapter 3 and the curse and how the curse had come upon Adam and Eve and how uh, God had spoken about part of the curse would be their futility in work and the, 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 the toil that would come upon their lives. So what Solomon is doing is he is unpacking for us what life is like after the fall. Keep reading. Let's look at verse 5. The sun rises, the sun sets, panting, it returns to the place where it rises. You got the picture, east to west, east to west, east to west. Verse 6, gusting to the south, turning to the north, turning, turning goes the wind, and the wind returns to its cycles. The wind blows from north to south, and then suddenly it's blowing from south to north, but then it's north to south again, and it's this endless repeated cycle that just goes round and round. Verse 7, all the streams flow to the sea, but the sea is never full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are wearisome, more than anyone can say. The eye isn't satisfied by seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. The satisfied and filled, those are actually terms of hunger and thirst. Your, your thirst isn't quenched. Your, your hunger isn't ever satisfied. That is a result of our own imperfection. It's our own brokenness. There is always more. Just when we think we've achieved what we want, something else comes up. You want proof? Did anybody pay attention to the news this week that iPhone 11's coming out? 
Every time you get an iPhone, the next one comes out, and inside of you there's this intrinsic desire to get the next one, even though this one's perfect. It does everything I need it to do. No, it doesn't. You need three little cameras on the back so you can take better pictures. No, I need more. <laughs> it's the same thing with cars. Oh, this car is amazing. This thing has a backup camera. Ooh. Well, guess what? The new one drives for you. No, I need that one next. The eye is never satisfied. The ear is never satisfied. Verse 9, what has been is what will be. What has been done is what will be done. There's nothing new under the sun. Can one say about anything, look, it's new. It's already existed in the ages before us. History repeats itself. The characters may be different. The concept is the exact same. And even though we might be running a more effective and efficient lap, we are all still on the same track. Nothing has changed. Not me. Oh, no, no, no. I'm making a difference. Verse 11's for you then. There's no remembrance of those who came before. And of those who will come after, there will also be no remembrance by those who follow them. There's, you forget. You forget. So, so let, me, let me challenge your thinking a little bit. What is probably the most popular trophy <laughs> besides the Super Bowl? Because I'm not allowed to talk about the Super Bowl. I'm in timeout. I get it. I understand. I'll just smirk a little. <sighs> But probably a couple of the greatest prizes that are out there today, you've got the Nobel Peace Prize, right? I mean, that is like something to seek to achieve. How many of you can name the last four winners of the Nobel Peace Prize? Somewhere back there was Al Gore for inventing the internet. I know that. It was in there somewhere. Um, <laughs> all right. How, how about, how about, okay, maybe we'll go a little, how about the Academy Awards? How many of you can name the last four Academy Award winners for Best Picture. Yeah. All right, I'll go simpler. How about your dad? Can you name your dad? Raise your hand if you know your dad's name. Raise your hand. This is not a trick. Okay, keep your hand up. How many of you can name your granddad? Keep your hand up. Oh, good, good. I'm proud of you guys. First name of your great-granddad. Everybody else put your hand Oh, suddenly we're down half. Great, great granddad? Great, great, great granddad. All right, we're down to about a percent. Some of you really like that uh, Ancestry.com thing. It's fine and good. But that just proves the point that Solomon's trying to make here in verse 11. There's no remembrance. You might have one of the greatest great, 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 great granddads out there. And yet you don't know his name. What Solomon says is at its core, life is hevel, meaningless, empty of purpose. It's a cycle that never ends, like your dishes. It just never ends, the laundry. How is it possible I have more laundry today than yesterday, and I did the laundry yesterday? Mowing the grass. It's a cycle that never ends unless you kill your grass, one option, or the greatest waste of time in life, making your bed. 
That's right. Life is futile. Aren't you glad you came to church today? The problem is we're in bondage and we're unable to escape from it. And what, what, what we need to ask ourselves is this. Where are we running? How are we trying to solve that most basic problem that life is so cyclical and at points seemingly meaningless and purposeless? What, where, where are you going? How are you trying to solve that? Solomon tells us in the next verses that he threw himself into a number of things in an attempt to escape, and he tells us exactly how that went for him. So look at chapter 1, verse 12. He says this, I, the teacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. Now, you've got to understand, David has died, Solomon has become king, and, and, and God asks or offers Solomon anything. He says, you, you ask for whatever you want, and I'm going to give it to you. And Solomon wisely asks for wisdom. And God is so impressed with the intent of his heart that he gives him not only wisdom, but he gives him fame, he gives him fortune, he gives him possessions. <coughs> Excuse me, sorry. First uh, uh, Kings chapter 4, verse 29 says this, God gave Solomon wisdom, very great insight and understanding as vast as the sand on the seashore. Solomon's wisdom was greater than the wisdom of all the people of the East, greater than all the wisdom of Egypt. He was wiser than anyone. His reputation extended to all the surrounding nations. Solomon, he spoke 3,000 proverbs. His songs numbered 1,005. He spoke about trees, about cedar, uh, from the cedar in Lebanon to the hyssop growing out of the wall. He spoke about animals, birds, reptiles, fish. Emissaries of all peoples sent by every king on earth who had heard of his wisdom came to listen to Solomon's wisdom. So, so what Solomon does is says, I'm going to pour myself into that wisdom. I, the teacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem. I applied my mind, verse 12, to examine and explore through wisdom all that is done under heaven. God has given people this miserable task to keep them occupied 14, I've seen all the things that are done under the sun, and I have found everything to be futile, a pure pursuit of the wind. Listen, what is crooked cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted. What he says is it doesn't matter how much wisdom you have. There are times in life that you will get to a moment where things are so twisted, you can't untwist them. Verse 16, I've said to myself, see, I have amassed wisdom far beyond all those who were over Jerusalem before me, and my mind has thoroughly grasped wisdom and knowledge, and I applied my mind to know wisdom and knowledge, madness and folly. I learned that this, too, is a pursuit of the wind, for with much wisdom is much sorrow. As knowledge increases, grief increases. How is that? Maybe a goofy illustration will help you understand how when knowledge increases, grief increases. Have any of you had a check engine light come on your dashboard? When you first see it, it's like, oh, a check engine light. I'll have to look into that. It's probably just a gas cap that needs to get replaced. As knowledge increases, so does the grief. You wish it was a gas cap that needed to be replaced. 
It ends up being something under the hood that I don't know what is, and it breaks, and somehow they tell you it costs you $2,000. With much knowledge comes much grief. Look, look, I'm going to push ahead to chapter 2, verse 12, because he talks about wisdom some more there. Chapter 2, verse 12. He says, Then I turn to consider wisdom, madness, and folly, for what will the king's successor be like. Think about that for a moment. Here is King Solomon, the wisest of all kings, the wisest of all humanity, who is, who is leading his nation, who is leading his country, and his thought wanders as he thinks about wisdom, as he, as he thinks about madness and folly, the opposite of wisdom, and he considers, who's going to be the next king? Oh, my head hurts. He'll do what has already been done. Oh, when I'm gone... We're going to end up with Teddy as king. And Teddy's a moron. Now, if you're here, Teddy, sorry, I apologize. I tried to pick a name. I didn't know anybody at Uniontown with that name. That actually took me the longest in my study this week. Find the name Teddy. But that's his concern. He's like, I, with my wisdom, there comes a grief because I know the one that comes after me is going to be far more foolish. Continuing on, I realized that there's an advantage to wisdom over folly. Just like the advantage of light over darkness. The wise person has eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. He says, now there, even though I get a little stressed out about the whole wisdom thing and the next guy to come, I do know that there is some advantages to being wise. And he says, it's like, it's like being a guy who runs through the living room with the lights on versus the guy who runs through the living room with the lights off. Wisdom versus foolishness. He says, so, so there is some value and benefit to wisdom. However, there is a great equalizer between the wise and the fool. Yet I also knew what one fate comes to them both. I said to myself, what happens to the fool will also happen to me. Why then have I been overly wise? I said to myself, this is also futile. Verse 16, for just like the fool, there is no lasting remembrance of the wise, since in the days to come, both will be forgotten. How is it that the wise person dies just like the fool? Therefore, I hated life because the work that was done under the sun was distressing to me. For everything is futile in a pursuit of the wind. Doesn't matter how wise you live. is appointed unto men that they'll die once. And after that, there's judgment. Wisdom doesn't remove you from the bondage of the cycle of life because there is no way you can know all of the answers. So many, many questions are going to remain Go back to chapter two, verse one. Solomon said, I'm gonna throw myself into wisdom and see if that helps me understand this this, this frivolity, this, this futility, this purposelessness of life. And then he says, okay, that didn't work. <laughs> so I'm going to throw myself into pleasure. Chapter 2, verse 1 talks about the parties, the pleasure, the enjoyment that Solomon had. Okay, Frank, you're saying Solomon threw a party? Come on, man. I have been to a partay. Was it a partay or a party? You have never been to a party like Solomon threw. Let me read this out of 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 22. Solomon's provisions for one day, hear that. Solomon's provisions for a one-day party 
And he did this day after day after day after day. Solomon's provisions for one day were 150 bushels of fine flour, okay, five and a half tons. Okay. 150 bushels of fine five flour, 300 bushels of meal, 11 tons. 10 fattened cattle, 20 range cattle, 100 sheep, goats, besides deer, gazelles, roebucks, and pen-fed poultry. So this dude had enough stuff at a party that most commentators who want to go extremely conservative say that it would take at least 25,000 people to consume every day. And you thought your backyard bash was something. Solomon knows how to party. He says in verse 1 of chapter 2, I said to myself, go ahead, I'm going to test, I'll test you with pleasure. I will enjoy what is good. But it turned out to be futile. I said about laughter, man, this is just madness. About pleasure, what does this accomplish? He says, no matter how awesome the party, it doesn't change the fact that Monday always comes. So in his life, even the greatest of pleasures become boring. We want more. Because the eye is never satisfied, nor is the ear. The life continues on like the treadmill. He continues to chase the wind. And, and this, this kind of goes with the same one, but just for clarity's sake, I, verse 4, it's a very complicated uh, title, things. He throws himself into things. <clears throat> it says in verse 4, chapter 2, I increased my achievements. I built Houses. I planted vineyards for myself. I made gardens and parks for myself. And I planted every kind of tree, fruit tree in them. I constructed reservoirs for myself from which to irrigate a grove of flourishing trees. When he says he built houses, he is not joking. It took him seven years to build the temple, one of the most glorious buildings in history. It took him 14 years to build his own home. He then built hundreds and hundreds of homes for his ladies, which we'll talk about here in just a few minutes. Verse 7, I acquired male and female servants, and I had slaves who were born in my house. Okay, we're not going to get into the ethical dilemma of the slavery aspect. We're going to talk simply about this. He had people who worked in his homes, in his gardens, in all of his projects, so that he never needed to lift a finger. He was pampered. Seven continues, I also owned livestock, large herds and flocks, more than all who were before me in Jerusalem. I also amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces whose bank accounts were filled full. I gathered male and female singers for myself. Hold that thought for a second. I gathered male and female singers for myself. If he heard music he enjoyed, he didn't start a, place, a playlist. He didn't stream it. He didn't buy their CD or their cassette, depending on how old you are, okay? He didn't, he didn't go and buy those. He bought the entire band. And he brought them home and said, play for me. And they did. I gathered many concubines, the delights of men. Solomon threw himself into a pursuit of uninhibited sex that had never been seen before. We're told in 1 Kings he had 700 concubines, oh, sorry, 700 wives and 300 concubines. Verse 9, I became great, surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. My wisdom also remained with me. That's an important little phrase in there. It's not like he lost all self-control. He was doing all of these things intentionally, trying to find the purpose in his life 
All that my eyes desired, I did not deny them. I did not refuse myself any pleasure. I took pleasure in all of my struggles. This was my reward for my struggles. I deserved this, is what he says. And when I considered all that I had accomplished and what I had labored to achieve, I found everything to be futile in a pursuit of the wind. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. To what advantage did he seek these things? Things lacked the purpose he longed for. And they didn't have the ability to remove him from that cycle of life. So then he threw himself into work. Work. Verse 18, he says, I hated all my work that I labored at under the sun because I need to leave it to the one who comes after me and who knows whether he'll be wise or a fool. Think about Solomon's sons for a moment who hear their daddy be like, I did all this work, I have all this stuff, and my son's an idiot, and I have to leave it to him. He'll take over all my work that I labored and skillfully under the sun. This is just futility. It led me to despair concerning my work I labored at. When there's a person whose work is done with wisdom and knowledge and skill, and he must give his portion to a person who hasn't worked for it, this is futility and a great wrong. You are forced, as you work hard and develop something to, 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 to wrap your arms around in that work, some type of productivity, you are faced with the realization that everything you have worked for will eventually be left behind for somebody else to enjoy. And you have no idea what they're going to do with what you worked for. So what does a person, verse 22, get with all the work and all his efforts that he labors at under the sun? For all his days are filled with grief. His occupation is sorrowful. Even at night, his mind doesn't rest. This, too, is futile. Did did it add any purpose? Did it add any value? Or does it, in fact, rob you of something? Work is not the thing that can rescue you from heaven. Go ahead. Change jobs. Right now. And you will find it's the same wherever you go. Because you can run away from a job, but you can't outrun yourself. Success in your work doesn't remove you from the bondage of the cycle of life. All right, well, that concludes my message. Let's pray and go home, huh? Good thing the music is uplifting today. Now, the problem is that he's seeking all of those things to fulfill life and its purposes. But what he did by pouring himself into those things is prove everything that you and I have already experienced. That we are marked by a brokenness that we can't fix. There's a void in the heart of man because what we are created for is so much bigger than this. We are created for eternity. We are created for God's good pleasure. We're created to have the good pleasure of knowing God so that that void, that created desire in us is never going to be found in all of these other things. And my fear is that what we try to do is we just try harder. And we try harder to cram more into that void. And and Solomon, Solomon had all of the means that you and I don't have, and he failed. How's it going to go for us? Instead, we need to look at what the real solution is. 
So where do we run? How do we escape the cycle? How do we get off the treadmill? At this moment, what, what the prophet Isaiah would do, in fact, he does it in chapter 55 of his book, he would stand up and he would ask you, now, how long are you going to do this? You just keep going and, and buying bread that doesn't satisfy. You're buying wine that just makes you more thirsty. How long are you going to continue to do the same things over and over and over and over again in the hopes that you'll finally find fulfillment? You're not going to. And then Isaiah gives this incredible invitation. Now come. This is the voice of God. Come, buy from me. Eat my bread, drink my wine, sit at my table. Come and be filled. The invitation from God is to step off the treadmill. How do we do that? We accept the truth of heaven. We accept that there are things that are out of our control, and yet they remain in his capable hands. We accept the truth that there are some things that we will never be able to figure out. We're just going to have to rest in his goodness, in his godness, in his mercy, in his love, in his grace, and in his justice in all things, even though we can't see them clearly right now. The real solution for us is to look above the sun. I mean, Ecclesiastes isn't, the point of Ecclesiastes isn't to turn you into an atheist, okay? It's not being written, so you're like, well, okay, none of life makes sense, so though there's no God, no. What it's supposed to do is turn you into a more humble theist, it's supposed to say, look, you need to, to get rid of your simplistic theories about God. Because we all have them. If I do this, this, and this, but I don't do that, then my life is going to be perfect, and I will have nothing but smooth sailing. Do you know how many people no longer sit in this church because of that type of thinking? And when the hevel came crashing down on them, because there was no simplistic answer anymore, they just threw up their arms and walked away. You know names. I know names. Stop the oversimplistic thinking of a God who is as vast as vast gets. Look to a God who is bigger than the heaven. Look to a God who has promised to redeem the mess that is down here, that is resulting in heaven. Look to the God who even loved us enough that he entered into the heaven with us and absorbed its effects in his body when he died on the cross. Look to the God who now pursues his perfectly good plan for us with an unrelenting faithfulness, even if, as in the case of Job, <laughs> what God's doing in that moment eludes you. You know the story of Job, right, Job? Job is this upright, righteous man who is accused before God by Satan. Satan is given permission to go down and, and, and occur, uh, cause hevel in Job's life. And, and Job is relaxing and enjoying things at home. A servant comes and says, there was this terrible thing. All your camels are dead. All of your camels are dead. Now, for you and I, we don't quite understand that, but that's a big deal. 
But then as you continue on, all of your shepherds are gone, all of your, all of your flocks are gone, all of your children have died. And in that moment, what Job did was he looked above the sun. He said, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away, but his name will forever be blessed. You remember how his wife responded, right? What's wrong with you? Curse God and die. And you remember how Job responded? Man, I miss my camels. And I'm just kidding. Um... <laughs> Sorry, got in my own way on that one. Faith. Faith is not believing that God is there. Faith is believing God is here. Look above the sun. Look at verse 24, chapter 2. There is nothing better for a person than to eat, drink, and enjoy his work. I've seen that even this is from God's hand. Because who can eat? Who can enjoy life apart from him? For to the person who is pleasing in his sight, he gives wisdom, knowledge, and joy. To the sinner, gives the task of gathering and accumulating in order to give to the one who is pleasing in God's sight. That too, futile, pursuit of the wind. Not only do we need to look above the sun, we need to enjoy the goodness of God. See, God gives such good gifts, but he doesn't just give us good gifts, he also gives us the ability to enjoy them. See, joy in life is a gift that God gives us. It doesn't come automatically. It doesn't come with riches. It doesn't come with relationships. It tells us in verse 25, who can eat and who can enjoy life apart from him? The person who is pleasing in his sight. The person who is pleasing in his sight is the one who gets to enjoy the good gifts of God. So, so who can possibly please God? You're in Jesus Christ. You do. So even in the middle of the most difficult of life circumstances, you get to enjoy a, a, a little glimpse of God's eternal goodness for you. You understand what he has done for you, what he is doing for you, and he will do for you. And so, so, so let me encourage you, this, this, please understand, well, whatever, enjoy every moment you can. Those are gifts from God. There is no pleasure that has not been given to you by God. God has given you the full ability to enjoy all of these things. And each and every moment, redeem the time. The days are evil. Cash it in. <laughs> My father was, cash in the happy days. I don't think that's in the Bible, but we can say that. Enjoy it. Take a walk. Better yet, take a nap. It's the Redskins. Be better off sleeping. Enjoy the sun. Enjoy it. Did you? Okay, some of you probably slept through it. There was fog this morning that was ridiculous. And it was gorgeous. There is nothing to me in the world 
like being able to sit up here on this hill, see the moon shining through the fog, and just wait a little while, and from over here, the sun starts burning it away. Enjoy the moment. There are no people on earth who should enjoy the moment more than those who are children of God. And he says, that's what these gifts are for. I have given them to you. Enjoy every moment you can. You need to, in one sense, embrace the absurdity, constantly changing, unchanging chaos of of, of life. But in the meantime of that chaos, God's created a really good life with really good pleasures for you. Because he's good. He loves you. Even better than that, you're in Jesus, he really likes you. May we enjoy the goodness of God, even in the midst of the chaos. Father, thank you for your word. I pray that somehow, this morning, you would use Ecclesiastes to rescue a despondent person. Father, I know that that, that these things are difficult and that they're hard to comprehend, they're hard to wrestle with, they're overwhelming at times, but God, I ask that, that even right now, as people think through these things, that they would reflect on the goodness in their lives that they've been able to experience because of you. God, we all have questions, and they're hard. Uh, life-changing somehow. You're a God who's above the sun, who actually understands it all. Your thoughts are far past ours. Your ways, far past ours. But God, would we we yield to you in this? Father, I thank you for your goodness to us, but more importantly, I, I thank you for the greatest gift of goodness we have ever seen. The gift of your son, Jesus Christ, rescuing us when we were helpless and hopeless. God, may we remember your goodness today.